Hello and welcome to this Blackwell Online podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Mary Rubin, whose Mother of God presents a fascinating and rich history of the Virgin Mary, which has been praised by Hilary Mantel as elegant, mysterious, and touching, and by Stephen Greenblatt as an intellectually exuberant tour de force. The book charts the ways in which the meaning of Mary was constructed and directed, how her image developed and grew in worship, art, music, writing, and popular culture. Its great achievement, it seems to me, is to provide the reader with a wealth of detail while never losing sight of the big picture. It's now over 30 years since Marina Warner published her landmark study of the Virgin Mary, Alone of All Her Sex. I began by asking Mary if she had undertaken her book with a sense that new perspectives had opened up, which she wanted to explore since the Warner book appeared. I didn't really begin the book as, as um, what can I do 30 years after Marina Warner, or indeed 20 years as when I started. It, it was more a question of how I found myself as a medieval historian looking at medieval culture and finding that uh, Mary was just sort of taken to be just there as just part of things absolutely naturally and not really problematized. I mean, you know, a sort of figure so ubiquitous and so important and uh, just absolutely glaringly there sort of waiting to be explored. I mean, as opposed to, I mean, obviously Marina Warner's book is just so important and so much loved. You know, it's never been out of print. It's a fantastic study. And it also arises from her own sensibility as a feminist, from a Catholic background, Catholic education engaging in the 70s with all the possibilities of critique within her tradition, I approached it very differently. Oh, I suppose from my own tradition, as much as I was very interested in sort of, I'm always very interested in Jewish-Christian relations, and I found that very often when Mary pops up in medieval culture, it is uh, not just as, you know, obviously a sort of consoling and merciful figure, uh, but also one who defines difference and defines opposition and defines the sort of the boundaries of Christianity and indeed leads people to go beyond them through, through, through mission and through, um, and through conquest, if we, if we think of the reconquest of, of Iberia, or if we think of the definition of heretics, or who's in and who's out, and indeed in relations between Jews and Christians, a lot of the debates were over issues that were put Mary to the fore, the incarnation, the virgin birth, the whole notion of associating godliness with the body, which of course is the great new big idea of Christianity. Mm. So uh, Mary turned up in areas that uh, aren't normally meant to be her domain or indeed explored or, or, or problematized by historians. So then I thought, actually, there isn't a single study by someone who is, you know, immersed in medieval early modern culture and who perhaps also has the skills to go back a little bit in time even earlier. So it really starts at the beginning. And I come from Jerusalem myself. I know, I know a lot of the places. I know a lot of the sort of situations, the emergent Christianity. So I felt, you know, although it was extending beyond my normal area of expertise, mm. I could do it with some responsibility and some effect. So really what, what started as sort of a thought about Mary in the Middle Ages, I sort of felt it's too big a phenomenon to, to just do a comfortable little study in my area of where I normally dwell. I really had to go beyond both before and of course after as well and to say and, and how does Mary become a global figure. So if you see, so, so although Marina Warner was always part of the world out there and a really important point of reference and also so beautifully written, there's also a way in which the motivations intellectual and other were also came from very many other places. When you do go back to the very earliest traces of Mary, 
you discover that these sources are, are very few. And you, the, the way you sort of express what the earliest Christians were trying to do is, is by using the very modern concept of a backstory. Now, can you say a little bit about in the ways in which that backstory was being mobilized? Yes, I mean, definitely, Cause, because it's really important to imagine ourselves back into that world where the Gospels are only one way for Christians to think about their identity or the followers of, of Jesus, let's call them, even the word Christianity doesn't exist until much later, and they emerge as a story, a powerful story about, you know, the charismatic leader, the new idea, uh, and his followers, and the acts which he left, and the memories of him. So uh, Mary is part of that story at crucial moments, like Christ's obviously the birth of Christ and and his very early life, but really not much more afterwards. On the other hand, what is also obvious is that there are other registers, other types of sources that are being produced, other types of conversations that are taking place and producing narrative traces, which are about people asking, uh, so, you know, what does it mean, you know, to be born of a woman? What sort of woman would that be? So that by the early second century, you know, we have uh, a gospel little sort of gospel, well, a text like a gospel in a way, a biography, a holy biography of Mary that answers all those questions. And one can imagine that what we happen to have remaining in one particular second century papyrus is part of a greater world that has sort of disappeared in a way of the conversations that preceded in a way um, uh, persuasion and perhaps conversion in these mm. conversations between Jews and Jewish Christians, between Jews and enthusiasts about Christ, between Gentiles and enthusiasts of Christ and so on. Mm. And there, obviously, one of the questions that would arise is, you know, the massive innovation is indeed a God-made flesh. So what is the nature of that flesh? Where does it come from in the whole issue of a sort of human lineage? And that is how I think Mary is discussed. I mean, how can you turn a woman into a vessel, into a person worthy, you know, fitting mm. to uh, to bear a God indeed? So in a way, the making of Mary, the, the creation of a background, how she was born, how she was bred, how she was kept pure in her life is as important to the work of persuasion as was what was happening in parallel, of course, that is the development of a strong notion of Christ as mm. both man and God, which is really, really difficult as well. And it's really in the fourth century then, once Christianity, you know, comes out into the open, is endorsed by a massive, massive sort of imperial machine of government and, and, and art and, and, and in sort of bureaucratic support in a way, that there are really authoritative pronouncements. And whenever you have a pronouncement about Jesus, you obviously also have the pronouncement about his mother. I'm thinking of the creed, of course, the various creedal mm. formulations. I mean, I'm not, you know, obviously much more time is spent on the nature of Christ, but, uh, but she is absolutely always there as part of a story, which means that there is always some place and some f official attention to Mary. But I would also suggest that there was a lot of unofficial interest as well that is happening for other reasons, for the very great fascination of a figure of a mother of God and the ways in which such a figure also can interact with and be enriched by pre-existing notions of, um, you know, feminine sanctity, mm. uh, sacrality, power, like say in Egypt, the figure of Isis, and of course in the uh, pagan world, the many traditions of um, of powerful women and goddesses. Now, if we jump forward to 
the the final centuries of the the first Christian millennium, it seems that the British Isles was particularly receptive in mm. liturgy and imagery to to Mary. Can you say why you you think that was? It's very evident in the sort of 10th and 11th centuries, partly because once the Normans come to England in the 11th century, they look at these Marian practices, these very precocious Anglo-Saxon traditions in the English, in the English language, in Old English, and they say, ooh, you know, what is this? How, you know, these local peculiarities, and they try to import with them a sort of European, reformed, very sort of Roman type of practice, which don't include at that moment a lot of attention to Mary, although they soon will. So there's a peculiar struggle over the sort of Marian traditions as something quintessentially English mm. and unfamiliar to the conquerors, all the new bishops who come from, from Normandy, and which has to be controlled. But the thing is, that it makes us all the more aware, therefore, that England really had its own trajectory, and that England, and to some extent Ireland as well, were very interested in the figure of Mary, even in the centuries of the earlier Middle Ages, when indeed in Europe there is not much of a cult of Mary at all. And um, scholars have explained that by quite independent contacts that um, the British Isles had with, uh, with Byzantium, with, with Iberia, where there were you know, other traditions of Mary that they could learn, that they could work on. And so uh, there's a tremendous sort of devotional poetry. There's a lot of sort of carvings, ivories. And there are traditions even of, of, of feasts, like the Feast of Mary's Conception, that seem to be a sort of English, uh, early sort of English in, in, invention. Of course, after the Norman Conquest, when, when England sort of goes more mainstream and gets drawn in, because, of course, its rulers are both rulers of northern France and northern and central France and England as well, it, it joins just at the moment when Europe itself starts developing a great interest in Mary in the monasteries and the cathedrals, it joins with Augusto, the age of, you know, sort of early Gothic. And, uh, and then, of course, there's not so much of a difference. But definitely at the moment of the Norman Conquest, the conquerors come and they, and they do sense that English religious houses have these, this enhanced interest in Mary and her life. And a lot of the stuff is apocryphal indeed. It's not in scripture. So what do we make of this? But, but later on, in a way, with a sort of more... As, as European religious culture becomes more sort of uniform in the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries, of course, England is, is, is just part of it in, a, mm. in a, you know, a rich theme of what is a much more general trend. I was fascinated, uh, fascinated by the way in which you delineate the emergence of the Mata Dolorosa mm. figure in art, going from a, from a fairly sort of static not very expressive figure at the foot of the cross to, to really an embodiment of all human suffering, pain and, and loss. When, when did that really begin to become part of the way that Mary was expressed in art? Again, even just going back to the Gospels, is precious little. I mean, most most of the most of the Gospels do not actually mention Mary in the crucifixion, so this is not at all an obvious theme. But I think that with with the development of um, a sort of sensibility around suffering of Jesus, uh, it's a theme that was very much developed in monasteries because, in as much as monks sort of offer themselves in a way to a sort of a life of, of chastity and prayer and so on, in a sort of imitation of, of Christ, we start getting a much more sort of attention to, 
um, suffering of Jesus and 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 as Mary is to the fore increasingly then the two sort of meet you know what does it mean if Christ suffered on the cross then just imagine how his mother felt as mm. well so there's a way in which uh, these these sort of appreciations these sort of aperçus are, are sort of worked out into sort of various logical conclusions that are also expressed visually but what's really important is also that Mary in her humanity, in the fact, you know, she's not a god, uh, she is a human like each one of the believers. She's just absolutely the perfect person to represent exactly how the believer might relate to the crucifixion. Mm. It's really interesting to see that, in a way, she's standing at the foot of the cross, and, you know, devotional writings and sermons encourage you, the believer, to say, just like Mary at the foot of the cross, imagine yourself there beholding. I mean, you're not crucified quite, but you can be the one who really compassionately participates and it's that imagining that creates even then of course reinforces the sort of intimacy of people's sense of Mary and her suffering and this is true not only for women but for men as well and and indeed it's really striking when one goes even nowadays to sites of commemoration I don't know of um, the fall of the first world war of other wars uh, the figure of the Pietà of the mother just holding, you know, the body of a fallen son of whatever tradition, I think is one that has a tremendous universal appeal and people know what it's about and people don't feel offended even if they're Jews mm. or Protestants or whatever to engage with this figure uh, because it does capture that, you know, you, you know, the most appalling loss, which is, you know, a parent losing their son or mother losing mm. a child. And I suppose that, that sort of humanization expressed in the Pietà is also related to, to Mary's intercessive powers, which again seem to develop as the centuries go by. Oh, absolutely. Very strongly. Uh, this, this notion that Mary and her son have a very special type of intimacy between them. It's not only that, you know, literally she bore him in the flesh. It's not only that they went through life together. And often devotional writers emphasize, you know, they did all these little banal things that parents and children do together and bond them so very much. And also when you think of all those images of mother and child at the breast and so on, they're touching and, and smiling at each other. There's always a sense of tremendous your physical and emotional intimacy, which is really developed by Europeans in the beginning of the second millennium of Christianity. So all that also means, well, well, of course, if they're so close, then of course, if Mary, if Mary is on our side, if we appeal to Mary, she is surely the most appropriate person to try and seed because she's the person to whom he can deny nothing. So this closeness of Mary to Jesus works in so many different ways, as, as of course, Mary as the absolutely best intercessor at the terrifying moment of judgment, mm. but also, of course, as the one whose suffering was absolutely the greatest, um, which is, of course, this very, very rich, rich theme. And you, as the beholder, as the devotee, you can just try. You cannot do it, actually, but you can just try to put yourself in her place. Hmm. And, um, and and the text literally increasingly emphasized this um, devotional guidebook. That continues in the Catholic tradition, of course, into modernity of literally taking you by the hand like Mary through her eyes, situating you. And also pilgrims to the Holy Land often, often guidebooks for pilgrims as they do the sort of, you know, Via Dolorosa, which is still there, of course, hmm. You know, are guided in a way here. Mary saw and here she saw her son carry the cross, and here she saw him wipe his sweaty brow, etc. And I suppose those aspects you've just described might sound entirely benign, but you also write, as you as you suggested earlier, about 
the Jews increasingly being singled out as a cause of, of Mary's pain. So it's it's got a darker obverse than simply being it's a... It's got a very, yes, it's got a very dark side. And it's so, it's once you notice it, you can't stop noticing it in a way because it's exactly that if you look at uh, devotional writings, and, and also we have to remember that this devotional poetry that develops in the Middle Ages, it's in all the vernaculars. It's not just Latin for a precious few. It's, it's really there in the dialects of people, in the various dialects of Italian and of German and, of, and so on. You know, So this is a, a poetry of devotion that people uh, could do you know, outside the church, even at home, or looking at an image. And it directs them absolutely to remember Mary at the foot of the cross and at the very same time, literally in the same words and sentences, who is the author of the suffering? Who is the author of this pain? Of course, the Jews. And sometimes even creating little exchanges or little dialogues between Mary to the Jew, you know, blaming the Jew, uh, you mm. know, complaining to the Jew, why have you done this? So the nexus of, um, you know, the whole context of devotional contemplation of the crucifixion becomes one extremely rich with sort of anti-Jewish um, sensibilities and, and, and in a very sort of emotional way, yeah. I wondered, Mary, if I could just ask you in conclusion, you talked about the, the paucity of, um, of sources right back at the beginning, and yet you, you, you trace this vast explosion of different renditions of Mary and views of Mary. And d d does it all, if, if one wants to boil it all down in conclusion, does, does it boil down to maternality, as you say in the last page of your book, to motherhood? Is that, is that really the essence of the sort of generative power of all these Marys throughout history? I think that must be true, but I want to say that in a way that isn't sort of banal, just reducing everything to, you know, everything is in everything and every culture yes. is the same, not at all. But rather to say that there is tremendous potential in whatever culture it is, tremendous potential to contemplate the ineffable love, the deep, deep intimacy between mother and son, and particularly when it's the son in whom are invested the greatest expectations and hopes, which is, of course, the son who is, is a god. Mm. And, of course, every culture that Christians came to, I mean, when you think of the encounter of, you know, the early missionaries, the Franciscans who came to Mexico, for example, they found there, of course, deep wells of devotional practices, of liturgies, of cults, of, of holy places, devoted to that, that, that um, sacred fertility, fecundity, and, and solace that is the figure of, of the mother, of the sort of, you know, sort of mm. second child-bearing woman thing. So to take that and to appreciate that in Christianity, this image became aligned with the expectation of salvation, with procedures of sacraments and so on, is to take something that's available universally and to historicize it, to make it specific to Christian cultures and so on. But it's also to say that where there was purpose, and mm. there is the sort of creative intelligence, obviously missionaries and those who engage new Christians in all sorts of parts of the world, and particularly in appalling circumstances, post-conquest and whatnot, could actually build on something that is familiar. You know, if you approach, um, I don't know, the Nahuatl with the figure of a mother and child mm. and the figure of the crucifixion, I would have thought that the mother and child was indeed more available to work with, yes. uh, particularly at the beginning of an encounter. And we do see that it was taken up to tremendous extent and very, very creatively by new Christians of amongst the indigenous peoples of the Americas and of course also in other parts of the world, in Africa, in, 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 in Asia, 
uh, always with that local spin, always with that local articulation. But in a way, that's just the way it was in Europe as well, wasn't it? I mean, mm. marry again, marry of different regions and different places being worked through local issues of aesthetics and taste and local materials as well, mm. what's available to people. Mary Rubin, Mother of God, A History of the Virgin Mary, is available now in paperback. Full details on ordering the book can be found at blackwell.co.uk.